listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Good morning. Great to see you all this morning. And we're... We're going to continue our series this week entitled Upside Down, studying through uh, Paul the Apostle's letter, uh, letters to the Thessalonians. And uh, last week, Pastor Nick took us through uh, Thessalonians chapter 1. And if you weren't able to be here, just go to whitefieldschurch.com and you can, of course, download that. And this week, we will continue and look at the whole chapter, uh, chapter 2. And if one of the distinctions of this church here at Whitefields, if you've been coming here, for any length of time, is that we go through the Bible, basically, book by book, chapter by chapter, and verse by verse. We wholeheartedly agree with Paul's exhortation to the elders in Ephesus when he told them in Acts 20, 20 27, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Here, and out here at Whitefields, we, we really, we'd really like to be accused of teaching the whole counsel of God. It's difficult to shy away then from difficult subjects and, and to only preach the ones, those feel-good subjects on Sunday morning. It's, um, it's difficult to shy away from those, uh, those difficult subjects when you are dedicated to presenting the Bible and the message of God to his people in its entirety. And so as Pastor Nick uh, shared with you last week, Second Thessalonians is one of, amongst one of the least taught books in the Bible, and it's, it's no surprise because for such a small little book, only three little chapters, it has some really difficult to understand passages, and one of them we're going to look at today. And, and one of the reasons I think, and I touched on this when we looked at chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians, is it seems that we're, we're only privy to one side of the conversation. We, you know, we're, we're not privy to any of the questions that the Thessalonians were asking from Paul, and, and we're not privy to some of the things that Paul had already taught them when he had spent that time there uh, with them in Thessalonica and teaching on the end times. And, uh, you know, he only spo- spent a, thir- a small amount of time there in Thessalonica, and yet he had time to share with them about some of the things we're going to look at today in chapter 2, the truth about the rapture, the day of the Lord, the apostasy, the man of lawlessness, the great delusion, and the return of Jesus. Certainly not peripheral uh, issues in the Bible, but in many ways central to the hope that we have in Jesus. But thankfully, in light of the whole counsel of God, we're able to hopefully grasp the central themes that Paul is writing to them and to us and to have a greater understanding of the end times and most importantly, our salvation and our hope in Jesus. So if you have your Bibles with you this morning, if you there at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, let's just go ahead and I'll read the entire chapter for us. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, and the son, the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember these uh, that when I was still with you, I told you these things? 
And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all the wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. But we ought always to give thanks to you. Uh, thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the tra traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by, by our letter. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and, our, and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Let's pray. Lord, we just, we thank you for your word, Lord. We thank you for presenting these things to us, Lord. And we just pray for this, the wisdom of your spirit as we study these passages. And we thank you, Lord, for the hope that we find in them. We thank you for the encouraging words that Paul has been speaking to these and those there in Thessalonica, Lord. And we take those for ourselves this morning. But we just pray, Lord, that you would just bless this time. And may your word go out in power and do what you have accomplished, have set it out to do, what you have ordained it to do in our midst here this morning. Amen. So the other day we were with the staff and we were playing, we were playing this game, What Do You Meme? Each player gets a number of cards with, with captions on them. And then the judge puts up a card, uh, like a, a picture card, some kind of picture. And you try and match one of the captions in your hand to that card. You know, try and find something that's ironic or funny or, or whatever. And you, you lay that card then face down when everybody else does that. And then the judge picks the cards up and he reads them out loud. And then he decides which one is the funniest. And then the win winner gets to keep, you know, whoever's one's the funniest. The winner gets to keep that picture card. And at the end, the one with the most picture cards is the winner. And uh, we do do other things and staff other than play these games. But it was, you know, it was a fun time. But one of the captions I had in my hand said, when, when your anxiety goes away and having no anxiety gives you anxiety. And first I thought this really, this really captures the tone of our society today. I think we're, we're really anxious about everything. And if there's nothing to be anxious about, we're really anxiously trying hard to find something to be anxious about, you know. And, and how many of you have gone through maybe a season of difficulty, a season of trials, and instead of maybe resting in the peace and the calm, you know, you're, you're starting to worry about that next storm, you know. I know I've been guilty of that, you know, when everything's going really, really well and you're thinking, yeah, nah, this is this definitely not going to last, and, you know, we have a church here. This church here in Thessalonica seems to be, they seem to be a very anxious church. And who could blame them? You know, from their conception as a church, they endured persecution and affliction. And not only persecution from civil and religious authorities, but also false prophets trying to, leading them to believe that they had somehow been left out of God's plans. And that got me thinking to, you know, 
uh, got me thinking about what actually causes anxiety. What is at the root of those things that cause us to worry? And the conclusion I came to, and we'll see it in this chapter, is that it's ultimately lies and deceit, deception at the root of our anxiety. Lies we tell ourselves, lies that others might tell us, and of course, lies told to us by the father of lies. It started with Satan asking Eve in the garden. He said, did, did God really, really say that? And that has continued today with Satan continually asking that question. Did God really say that? Bringing everything about God and his promises and his word into question. Lies and deceit are at the root of this chapter. And Paul is going to walk us through that confusion, shows how to stand firm in our salvation and on the promises of God. We're going to look at Three main points uh, this morning. If you're taking notes, they'll probably be up in the back. First, first point is going to be lies, lies and deceit there in verses 1 through 3. And then, then the second point is going to be correction and truth, where, where Paul's going to you know, speak to that, those lies, and, and he's going to bring truth and bring correction in verses 3 through 12. And then we're going to finish with our third point, stand firm in verses 13 through 17. So as we read there in verse verse 1 through 3 in chapter 2, now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. So this second letter of Paul's to the Thessalonians was written roughly a year after the first letter and and probably around 53 A.D. And during that time, the, the persecution of the church had not subsided at all. And in many ways, it probably had ramped up quite a bit. And the church, you know, unsurprisingly, had grown weary under the weight of this persecution. And, and Paul spends chapter 1, which we looked at last week, drawing their attention back to the bigger picture and to God's ultimate justice in the end for those who would afflict them now. And that the difficulties that they were going through actually proved the genuineness of their faith and it was causing their faith to grow but their greatest anxiety seems to stem from the idea that pers- that the persecution they were suffering through was actually the day of the lord and that paul had taught and that paul had taught them about when they were when he was with them, and then he reminded them of in chapter 5, and we looked at that uh, a few weeks ago, chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians, the day of the Lord. They thought they were suffering through that final tribulation, and that somehow they had missed the rapture of the church that they had been, if you would, left behind. And when, where did we get this word rapture from? Well, it comes from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 17. We also had looked at that a few weeks ago. But let me read from Verse 15 of chapter 4, verse, uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, just to give us some context. And it goes like this, for, for this we declare to you, this is now 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, uh, verse 15, for this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left unto the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. That phrase, caught up there in verse 17, is where we get the word rapture from. The word rapture is not in the, in the ancient Greek text, but comes from the Latin Vulgate, which translates the phrase 
caught up with rapturus, from which we get our English word rapture. And this passage here is the basis for the New Testament doctrine of the rapture, the catching away of believers to be with Jesus. Now, I use that phrase, basis for, but it is, this verse is only a part of a very larger narrative that the Thessalonians would have been aware of, a narrative that includes the prophecies of Daniel, chapters 9 through 11, the book of Joel, Matthew chapter 24 and 25, and we can also include the book of Revelation in our understanding, though that book had not yet been written during their time. So this view, or this escalation, eschatological, there's a great word, eschatological understanding of the end times that I believe Paul has been talking about uh, through these two letters is called the pre-tribulation rapture. Now in eschatology, it's important to remember that almost all Christians agree on three things, on these three things. One, there is coming a time of great tribulation such as the world has never seen. Two, after that tribulation, Christ will return to establish his kingdom. And three, there will be a rapture, a translation from mortality to immortality for believers. Now the question is, and then what is debated among many scholars and Christians and for, for centuries, is when does that rapture occur in relation to the tribulation and the second coming of Christ? Well, pre-tribulationism, so to speak, teaches that the rapture occurs before the tribulation starts. At that time, the church will meet Christ in the air, and then sometime after that, the Antichrist is revealed, and the tribulation begins. In other words, the rapture and Christ's coming to, be, to set up his king, kingdom are separated by at least seven years, and a number we get from Daniel, which is also then reiterated in the book of Revelation. According to this view, the church does not experience any of the tribulation. This is a view that's held by a large part of the evangelical church community, many biblical scholars and theologians. It's also the view that I personally, personally hold. Now, there are many brilliant scholars that stand with me on this view, and there are many that stand against me. There are, there are also, of course, many in between. It's, you know, it's really difficult if, if anybody says they know exactly, and many people have, have tried to know exactly when Christ returned, we can't know. It's difficult to be completely true about, completely sure about end times doctrines because they're in the future. We only have pieces that we can put together, but we can only certain up until a certain point. It's not something I would ever be willing to be dogmatic about. And this is, of course, not a, a subject, a topic for believers to divide over. It's not a salvation issue, but a secondary issue, though I would argue that it is a very important secondary issue. Whether we like it or not, our, our eschatological, how our eschatology, yeah, that word affects how we live our lives, our eschatology. There we go. Our framework for how, you know, our, how our lives will end. Your life is going to end. 10 out of 10 people die. It's a proven statistic. The world is going to get, end, as we discussed before, that the timeline of our existence is, is linear. It's on, a, it's on a plane and it's not cyclical. How you view, you know, how you view the facts surrounding that determines how you will live. If you think there is life after death, you're going to live a certain way. If you don't believe in an afterlife, you're going to live a completely different way. Even if you're completely indifferent to these things, it still affects you. It, it still matters. And as Christians, our view regarding the second coming of Jesus or lack thereof will affect how we live as well. You know, interesting enough, 
when Paul was, was kicked out of Thessalonica, as we read that, you know, it's kind of the basis for, for our, our, the, the title of our series, Upside Down. We take it from Acts 17, where we see the birth of this church. Now, when he was kicked out and had to escape from Thessalonica, he escaped to Berea. And this is what was said of the Bereans in Acts chapter 17, verse 11. It says, Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. And we know that it was Paul's heart that the Thessalonican church not be ignorant of these things either. So my exhortation to you today is to be a Berean. You know, don't take what I say as face value. Let this study be a springboard for you to dive into God's word and learn more about these things. Study Daniel. Study Matthew 24 and 25. Study Revelation. Let God pour his wisdom into you. If there are things that you don't understand about what we talk about today, then, you know, dive into the word. Study it. There's no way that I can cover all that is in chapter 2 today's study. You know, I, I, I was speaking with the worship leader before this morning and I said hey you know we should go shorter with the music and he's like no way I'm like he's just a very disagreeable guy so um so there's a lot to get to so (laughs) worship leaders so you know it's my strong opinion though that the source of anxiety for the Thessalonians that was that they had somehow missed the rapture and they were now in the throes of the tribulation or, or they felt like maybe they had missed the entire day of the Lord altogether And one of the greatest arguments for believers not going through the tribulation is from, again, from the whole counsel of God, that that greater narrative as you you step away and you look at the whole counsel of God. If If we look at the example of Noah, we see that Noah and his family were saved from the wrath of God's judgment on the earth. And again, if we look at the example of Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah, we see that Lot and his family were saved from the destruction that came upon Sodom and Gomorrah. And then Paul strengthens his this argument, when, when he wrote there in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10, he, he writes, And to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus delivers us from the wrath to come. And the idea in chapter 5 that we looked at, that the, Thess- that the Thessalonian believers would not be overtaken by the day of the Lord. Revelation, of course, also gives us great insight into this. In chapter 3, verse 10, in the letter to the church in Philadelphia, are you familiar with the book of Revelation? It says this, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. And you can note that the promise is not preservation through the trial, but deliverance from the hour, that is, from the time period of the trial. So this is why I believe that the Thessalonians were so shook up. They believed that Jesus had come and he had gone. That would have been a a scary thought. Why did they believe this? Well, verse 2 gives us some insight. It says, We ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us. And so here's where the lies and the deceit, they come in. Probably maybe a combination of misunderstanding on their part and then lies being fed to them uh, by false prophets and teachers that were coming in the name of God and also coming in the name of Paul. And you know, it's probably no stretch of the imagination to think that someone stood up at one of their meetings and said, I have a new word, a new prophecy You know, the Spirit has spoken, thus says the Lord, you are all now going through the tribulation. And and then maybe that was, you know, 
of course, their current predicament, their, their current experience of going through all these trials and persecutions seemed to validate that new word. And it seems, of course, then with someone with a letter then showed up that supposedly was written by Paul, which then added even more confusion and seemed to contradict the things that Paul had been clearly, had clearly taught them about the rapture and the day of the Lord. But Paul, gracious as he has been in both his letters to them, tells them not to be shaken, not to be alarmed, and will go on to tell them why and bring correction and truth to their lies to the lies and deceit, which brings us to our second point, truth and correction. Starting there in verse 3, Paul is going to correct some of the falsehoods they, they have now come to believe and through truth bring peace of mind and eternal comfort. In doing this, Paul is going to educate us in some important truths regarding the end times and, of course, things we need to be aware of. So as we read there again, this is in verses 3 through 5, let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? So right here, I want to make one more point about why I think Scripture points us towards a pre-tribulation rapture of the church, that the church will not go through that seven-year tribulation period spoken of in Daniel and Revelation. And that is because up until this point in our study of Thessalonians, we have been preaching on the eminent return of Jesus, the eminent return of Jesus Christ, that he would come at any time. And, and Jesus told us in Matthew 24, uh, verse 36, he says, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. only. And then again in verse 42 of chapter 24 of Matthew, watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. And again in verse 44, therefore, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not ex expect. And then in Acts 1, 7 through 8, he said to them, It's not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his authority. But we're going to look at this verse again. Very important part in your verse 8. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. It's not for us to know. We looked at this before in our studies. We cannot know. No one can know except the Father. But we are to be ready, of course, and working for the kingdom in, part in anticipation of that day. Bringing glory to God in all that we do. In contrast, Paul begins his correction here by pointing out that the day of the Lord could not have happened because certain things needed to take place before Jesus returns with his saints in, uh, to, rule, to establish his kingdom and judge here on the earth. The book of Daniel and of Revelation give us a definite timelines to follow, which leads me to believe that the rapture of the church and then the revelation of the man of lawlessness or the Antichrist usher in this final time of tribulation, at the end of which Jesus returns to set up his kingdom. And I think this is supported by the idea in Matthew 24, where, where two different world conditions are described there in Matthew 24 in regards to Jesus' return. And then, of course, the manner in which Jesus returned, there are two kinds of descriptions, one that he's, he returns in secret and one that he returns very obvious, very loud, and with wrath and with judgment. So Paul, in pointing out this fact to them, serves to calm their fears that God had not forgotten them, 
or that they had somehow not been counted worthy of the kingdom of God. So Paul says there in verse 3, he says, Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. So what is Paul talking about here? Maybe some terms that are new to you or you haven't heard them in a while. First of all, what is, what is the rebellion? Well, some of your Bibles might say falling away. A few of them might actually use that word apostasy. Uh, the original Greek word is, is apostia, or apostia, which means defection from the truth or fall away or forsake. And of course, that's where we get our word apostasy from. A more modern definition of this word would read um, the abandonment or the renunciation of a religious or political belief. So that's what's kind of meant by that word rebellion there. And then who is the man of lawlessness, the son of destruction, or as some of your Bibles might read, man of sin, son of perdition. I believe scripture points to the fact that this will be the Antichrist spoken of in Daniel 9, verse 26, in Revelation 13, empowered, empowered by Satan himself to, to at first bring peace but then ultimately to wage war and destruction against all that is godly. This title, Man of Lawlessness, has been identified with many different individuals over time, including uh, Antichus, Epiphanes, Caligula, Nero. They've all been called the Antichrist. Of course, in our last century, uh, Hitler was called the Antichrist. Stalin was called uh, Mussolini. Many have been called the Antichrist. Funny enough, when, uh, when I went to boot camp with the Marine Corps. It was 1990, August 6th. August 5th, always, always kosher in the world, so to speak, peaceful. Well, I get on a plane August 6th, fly to San Diego to start my training uh, at boot camp, and suddenly we're at war with Kuwait. Uh, no, we're at war with uh, Iraq because Saddam Hussein had attacked Kuwait. So my poor mother was not too happy. Like, oh, there's no wars, and you know, don't worry, moms, everything will be fine. And then I arrive in San Diego, and we're at war. Well, interesting enough was that uh, um, I, I arrived there. Suddenly, all these guys were going to war. A lot of guys had never really thought about that. And this rumor started floating around boot camp, and especially in my, in my group that I was with, 70 guys you're with, that, that this guy, Saddam Hussein, he's the Antichrist. And so it must have been God's sense of humor. You know, I grew up in the church, and uh, uh, I went to a Christian school, Christian high school, and here I'm now, like, completely changed. My, my life is completely changed. I'm not joining the Marine Corps, you know, and it's completely you know, there's two different, two, you know, the complete opposite uh, life that I was in before. And, and, you know, God's sense of humor is like, well, he kind of made me the guru now for, for everything about end times. People were asking me, like, if they found out I was a Christian, which means I, I had the whole entire Bible memorized. And I knew everything to know about everything about the end times. And guess what I was doing for most of boot camp for 13 weeks was fielding questions about the Antichrist to these guys who were like now thinking about their internal destiny because they hadn't counted on the fact they were actually going to go to war when they signed on the dotted line. So it was quite interesting that, uh, of course, he, of course, didn't turn out to be the Antichrist. And so we've moved on. We've moved on from that. But, but the close association of the man of lawlessness with the day of the Lord rules out, I think, historical people. Otherwise, the day of the Lord might have happened centuries ago. 
This man of lawlessness, he cannot be Satan either, for he is distinguished from Satan there in verse 9. We've already read that, and we'll get to that again. But nor can this be a reference to maybe a principle of evil, for this, this text specifically identifies him as a man. He can be none other than, I believe, the final Antichrist. Now, there have been some traditional understandings of this text that the man of lawlessness or the Antichrist, he's not a man, but an institution. You know, many Protestant commentators have, you know, have looked at the succession of popes and the papacy and said, that's the Antichrist. And then the Catholics and the Counter-Reformation, they then returned the favor and they called Martin Luther the Antichrist. And then in the 1300s, the emperor of the time and the pope of the time, they took turns in calling each other the Antichrist. But I think the plain reading of the text points to an individual. Daniel refers to him as an individual, and John, in his letters, also identifies him as an individual. You know, in the Bible, we only find this word, this term Antichrist, used by John in his letters. In 1 John 2.18, he writes, Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard, that Antichrist is coming. So now many, many Antichrists have come. Therefore we, know, therefore we know that it is the last hour. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? Verse 22. Who is, who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. And this is what the Antichrist means. One who is against Christ. Or another way of putting it, it is that he is in the place of Christ. Verse 4 shows that that is, is exactly who he is. We read there in verse 4, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. So in conjunction with a great falling away, a rejection by many of their Christian faith, this Antichrist will come on the scene at first proclaiming peace and bringing peace. Peace between Jews and peace between the Jews and the Arabs in Jerusalem even. Some might say that it's, you know, we find that impossible right now. There's absolutely no way that these two sides could ever find peace. You know, some believe he will even rebuild the temple and start, let them start their Old Testament uh, sacrifices. And then at some point he's going to turn the tables, entering that temple and proclaiming himself to be God. Now, a hundred years ago, Many Christian theologians and commentators wondered that they looked at these passages and like, how on earth is this, how can this take place? How on earth is this true? The Jews at the time, you know, for the last 2,000 years have been scattered all over the globe. But then something miraculous happened in 1948 when Israel became a nation again and the Jews started moving back to that land of promise. And then suddenly these scriptures and the prophecies of Daniel took on a whole uh, new meaning. Then Paul goes on there in verse, verse 6. He, he writes, And you know what is restraining him, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. Now Paul says, You know what is restraining him. You know what is restraining him. Well, the Thessalonians might have known, and Paul was now reminding them of the things he had taught them while he was there. But unfortunately, we don't have the whole picture and the benefit of hearing Paul's Bible studies there in Thessalonica on this subject. And so, of course, there's a lot of speculation as to what that means. Uh, who, is the, who is the one that is restraining? 
For the sake of our time, I will give you the two prevailing theories. The first is, it's, it's the Holy Spirit working through the church is the one that is preventing the Antichrist from being revealed. The church is then, of course, raptured, and the influence of the Holy Spirit is then removed, allowing for the Antichrist to rise to power and to his full potential. The second theory is that the one who restrains is actually the state, meaning our, our governments, our countries, and their regulations, providing, of course, right now some kind of law and order. But the idea is that there would be some kind of major meltdown, major anarchy, world's uh, systems and governments collapsing, and out of this chaos, the Antichrist will rise and bring peace. So these are the two prevailing theories, and I will tell you that I lean towards the first one because I, I think, again, it fits better with the larger narrative of Scripture. You know, you and I... We're called, if you're a believer, you're called to be salt and light to the world. Influencers for the gospel, empowered by the Spirit. These were the words of Jesus in Acts 1.8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And remember the scripture before this, when we read that, was the disciples asking them, Lord, when are you going to set up your kingdom? And Jesus says, it's not your time to know when that's going to happen. What you need to know is this, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. If that influence is then removed, there will be no one to call out the Antichrist for what he is, the son of destruction. But I love there in verse 8, how Paul, almost in a kind of nonchalant way, gives us the end of the story. He writes, And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. He will be revealed. He will serve his purpose, and then Jesus will breathe on him, and he will be destroyed. The son of destruction will be destroyed by the son of God. We should never let, never forget who is in charge, always. As that song that sometimes we sing, our God is greater, our God is stronger. God, you are higher than any other. Our God is healer, awesome in power, our God. Sometimes we just need to remind ourselves of that. Just like the Thessalonians, we can get caught up in interpreting our circumstances. We need to let our theology rise, our theology, our knowledge of God rise above our circumstances. That is why it's so important this time together, this time together on Sundays and to fix our eyes as we sang this morning, to fix our eyes on Jesus and the things of this earth, they will just fade. They will fade away. That, that, that fix our eyes on a God that is greater than us, that never changes, that never fails. To sing of his mercies and his glory. To pray for one another. To be in community. To learn of him and all he has done for us. It, if you take nothing away from today's study, all this talk of rebellion, antichrists, and raptures, and all this kind of stuff, remember, the end is written, and God wins. And if you are in him today, if Jesus is your Lord and Savior then you are part of that victory and you should take comfort in that this morning. But this Antichrist, this man of lawlessness will have a moment. He will have a moment of fame and it will not be good. We read on there in verses 9 and 10, the coming of the lawless one, one is by the activity of Satan with all power and wicked and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. He's going to fool a lot of people. 
with his false signs and wonders. Just like the, the Egyptian magicians that we read about in the Old Testament in the time of Moses, he will seem all-powerful, deceiving many and returning people away from the one and true God. And then as we go on in verses 11 and 12, therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Well, that doesn't seem fair. He will send a strong delusion. Not only are people being deceived by one who's working the miracles of God, but then God himself will send a strong delusion so that they will believe what is false. Doesn't seem fair. This is kind of one of those difficult passages that people have a hard time understanding. And I think what is helpful in these cases, again, is to, to zoom out to zoom out, to take the whole counsel of God into account, to get the larger narrative, the whole biblical narrative on this. What can we know about God in this situation? What does the Bible tell us about God in this situation? Well, 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach all should reach repentance. I think the, the New King James Version puts it even better. The, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering. I love that word, long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And of course, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. What do these verses tell, about, tell us about God's heart towards us and towards the world? Romans 5.10, one of my favorite verses. For if while we were enemies, we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? What's God's heart towards you and I? We look at the situation with Pharaoh and the children of Israel. You know, if you know that story, the ten plagues, you know, after each plague it reads that Pharaoh hardened his heart towards God and towards the people. Pharaoh hardened his heart. The next plague, Pharaoh hardened his heart. The plague of locusts, Pharaoh hardened his heart. And then, it, and then at some point, we see, we see a turning point, and we see that it says, it's written, God's, God hardened, hardened Pharaoh's heart. At what point are we just left with our own selfish will? At what point are we left the works of our own hands. 1 Timothy 4, verses 1 and 2 says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Jesus said something very similar in Matthew 24, 12, that because of lawlessness, the love of many will grow cold. You know, if your mantra today is uh, not your will be done, but my will be done, God is going to say one day, well, okay, your will be done then. I think a few verses in Romans really help us to understand a little bit of what's going on here. In Romans chapter 1, verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by, by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they, be, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. That was verse 21. Verse 24, therefore God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, 
25, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And then lastly, verse 28, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Ultimately, God's judgment on mankind is to give them what they want, is to give them what they want, and that's life apart from him. Verse 10 says that this deception is going to come about upon those who are already perishing. They've already chosen to believe the lie of Satan, and God finally gives them over to that lie. God's Spirit today is in the world prodding and poking people, poking the hearts of unbelievers, and one day that poking and that prodding is going to stop. And if you don't know Christ, you'll be left with the work of your own hands and not the finished work of Christ. Today, today is the day of salvation. As we come to our last point this morning, stand for I want you to see that in the midst of all this doom and gloom and end times destruction, Paul's heart is to draw them back to what happens, uh, what, what, what really matters most. And let's just read verses 13 through 17 again. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the tra- traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. What, what causes us to falter many times and be deceived and, 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 and succumb to lies? What, what, causes us, what, what, what causes that in our lives? It's, it's when we find ourselves believing the narrative of the world or being overcome by our circumstances and losing sight of Jesus, and I certainly do not say that in a condescending way. It's so easy today to be distracted, so easy in our day and age to be distracted. There, in verse 7, Paul wrote earlier on that the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. It's already at work in our world today. It's so easy to, to, to be distracted by and get our eyes off what really matters most. We have to fight it. Every day, we have to fight it. Well, Paul gives us three principles here in verse 13 to help us daily, uh, daily f- to fix our eyes upon, to turn our eyes upon Jesus and fix our eyes on the glories of Christ. The, the first one there is we've been chosen by God. We've been chosen by God. We are his children. And, you know, that means something. He loves you with an everlasting love. And nothing can separate us from that love. Romans eight thirty-five. it's... One of the best passages in Scripture. Who, can, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As is written for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You belong to God. That's the first one. The second one, His Spirit is working in you in the process of sanctification. Philippians 1, 6, we all know that verse, I am sure of this, that He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. And thirdly, 
we've been given the truth. We've been given the truth. We need to believe it. We need to live it out. We need to apply it. We need to know it. Paul says to stand firm on these things. Our eternal comfort, our good hope through grace are founded on the eternal truths of God's love for us. His sacrifice on our behalf. What we celebrate when we go back for communion. Not the work of our hands. You know, stuff is going to happen. Afflictions, trials, persecutions. But these are really all temporary. But God's word and his promises are eternal. And as we close this morning, I want to leave you with Paul's words in verse 17. Comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work. Comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work. Over the past few weeks, as we have been looking at these two letters from Paul to the church in Thessalonica, to a church suffering persecution, a church whose faith, yes, was strong, but they had also stumbled in some areas. They're still, they're working through all those things that Paul taught them, working out those truths about God, their identity in Christ. Paul has time and time told them to, to, to take courage in the truth of who God is and his character and to encourage each other in these things. This is where we find eternal comfort and good hope through grace. This is why despite our circumstances, we have a peace beyond all understanding. In the midst of that storm, you know, when the waves are crashing and we know that Jesus is in the boat with us and that his promises are true, he never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, forever, into eternity. We can, we, when we let our theology, again, our knowledge of God, elevate us above our circumstances, when, we, when those lies from Satan come, when we lose sight of our identity in Christ, we can stand firm on his words together and grip tighter to his hand, knowing his love for us is real and proven on the cross. And he says, encourage one another in these words. Let's stand. Let's all pray together. Lord, we thank you for those. Lord, we thank you for our eternal comfort in you. And Lord, we thank you that you never change. You're the same yesterday, today, and forever. And our, our world might be collapsing around us. Our society might be collapsing around us. What's, what's good is called evil, and what evil is called good. And Lord, we wonder. We say, Lord, come quickly. Lord, you've called us, each one of us. You've given us your Holy Spirit to be influences in this world, influences for the gospel. We, your church, you've called us to be the ones to preach that gospel to be the one, the feet, the hands that you have sent out into this world to bring the message of good hope, the good news of Jesus Christ. And I pray, Lord, that you would empower us to do that, to go into Longmont and beyond. And Lord, you're already doing that. And I just pray for each one of us here today that you would continue to fill us with your spirit for that task, for your glory. We praise you in Jesus' name. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.